This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode features discussions of animals involving testing, cruelty, and death that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. On October 26th, 1973... 54-year-old Ruth Bates Harris strode purposefully down the long halls of NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. In 1971, Harris had been hired as NASA's Director of Equal Opportunity. But as quickly as she received her title, Harris was demoted. The position she'd been promised was given to someone else, Mr. Dudley McConnell. In one blow, he had both replaced her and become her boss. Gracefully, Harris refused to let the insult get in the way of her career. For the next two years, she continued working for NASA under her altered job description, Deputy Assistant Administrator for Equal Opportunity. And she was still NASA's highest-ranking black female official. On a typical day, Harris would be headed to the office of Mr. McConnell, her direct superior. But that fall day, Harris walked straight past McConnell's office. Perhaps the last time she ever saw it. She had been summoned to meet with someone much higher in the chain of command, NASA's administrator, James C. Fletcher. And she knew why. During her two years at NASA, Harris had witnessed firsthand how the agency failed to uphold its Equal Employment Initiative. She attempted to effect the much-needed changes and to bring the problems to the attention of her superiors but they had foiled her at every turn. So for the past month, she'd been taking charge in meetings and registering complaints against the agency. As she took a seat in Fletcher's office, Harris held her chin high. She knew it was only a matter of time before they squashed this orderly revolt. But the news stung just the same. In so many words, Fletcher delivered a final verdict. You're fired. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. 
And I'm Kate. This season, we're covering the dark side of space. While the quest to put a man on the moon and explore the great beyond has always been a trophy on the shelves of US history, we're digging just a little deeper into what really happened to get there. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other Parcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Last week, we learned about Operation Paperclip, a secret program that employed former Nazi scientists and engineers in various space race projects for the U.S. This week, we'll be digging deeper into the suspicious ethics behind space travel. Before man ever went into orbit, a host of other species were forced to make the dangerous and often fatal voyage. And while America was championing the famed Mercury 7 astronauts, NASA was sidelining a slew of qualified females and other non-white candidates. With the Air Force and NASA as the gatekeepers of space, only white male astronauts were allowed to blaze the trail. In his scintillating book about the space race titled The Right Stuff, American author and journalist Tom Wolfe described the first U.S. astronauts as seven patriotic, God-fearing, small-town Protestant family men with excellent backing on the home front. These, of course, were the Mercury Seven, a homogenous group of military men who blazed a trail into space. Even today, they're regarded as heroes, shining examples of American competency. But looks can be deceiving, and so can history. Few people know exactly why these men were considered to be so highly qualified to begin with. Even fewer are willing to acknowledge that their resumes weren't necessarily the strongest ones in the pile. But before we talk about brains, Let's begin with bravery. While the journey to space is undoubtedly risky, America's first astronauts weren't exactly launching into the unknown. In fact, they were following in the small footprints of other species. Before a single human ever peaked above the Earth's atmosphere, a number of animals tested the proverbial waters. Beginning in the late 1940s, U.S. rocket scientists were itching to understand the cellular changes that could take place in outer space. They specifically wanted to understand how biology would be affected by microgravity, a much weaker force than Earth's gravity. And their ultimate concern, of course, was whether or not the human body could survive space travel. As Julie Robinson, NASA's chief scientist for the International Space Station, says, we were concerned that humans might suffocate on the contents of their own stomachs if it all went floating up. To understand the answer to this and other scientific questions, America began sending non-human astronauts into the ether. 
The first of these voyages commenced on February 20, 1947, when the U.S. packed tiny fruit flies aboard a German V-2 rocket, courtesy of the defeated Nazi party that created the technology. The missile launched into space, reaching an altitude of about 68 miles before the flies were delivered safely back to Earth. By the next year, the U.S. was already experimenting with sending mammals into space. The first was Albert I, a rhesus monkey that launched on June 11, 1948. He had been tucked into a sleeping bag-like uniform with only his arms free and then placed into a capsule the size of a small coffin. Despite these inhumane conditions, Albert I was expected, or rather hoped, to survive the journey and return to Earth. But his V-2 rocket failed before it reached peak altitude, causing his unfortunate death. Albert's legacy was repeated by three more primates, creatively named Albert II, III, and IV. Unfortunately, they each experienced some sort of failure, from rocket difficulties to malfunctioning parachutes. None of them survived. The issue clearly wasn't so much whether a living being could survive in space as whether they could even make it there safely to begin with. The U.S. wasn't the only nation carrying out dangerous tests with unwitting species. In the 1950s, the Soviets launched a total of 12 dogs into outer space with varying results. The most famous of these dogs, and perhaps the most popular animal astronaut of all time, was Laika. In 1957, the Soviet space program nabbed this unassuming husky spitz mutt off the streets. They dubbed her Kudryavka, meaning Little Curly in Russian. But following a public appearance during which she barked, Kudryavka's name was changed to Laika, which literally translates to Barker. A dull moniker, considering the adventure that Soviets had planned for her. On November 3, 1957, Laika was strapped into the Sputnik 2 satellite and rocketed into space. What lay ahead seemed to indicate a slow suicide mission. Even if Laika did survive the journey into space, within a week, the tiny capsule would lose oxygen. She would suffocate. But her death came even sooner than that. Declassified Russian records now show that the flight was terrifying for Laika. Her heart rate tripled and her breathing quadrupled during the first phase of the voyage. Eventually, she reached orbit, circling Earth in a mere 103 minutes, and becoming the first living being to ever do so. But then Sputnik 2 lost its heat shield. Subsequently, Laika passed away from overheating, likely combined with stress. Soviet rocket scientists continued to prey on stray dogs as their involuntary astronauts. They believed these canines were better prepared to endure low temperatures. If they could handle the freezing streets of Russia, surely they could deal with outer space. Their science wasn't entirely wrong. Several of these pups would live on to become international superheroes. In 1960, Two female dogs named Strelka and Belka traveled on the Sputnik 5 satellite along with a gray rabbit, 40 mice, two rats, and 15 flasks of fruit flies and fauna. 
they were the first animals to return from orbit alive. And later, when Strelka birthed the litter of puppies, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev presented one to President John F. Kennedy, a taciturn gesture of kindness amidst the space race madness. The U.S. wasn't finished with its animal experiments either. Five months later, on January 31, 1961, America launched a mercury capsule containing a chimpanzee named Ham. And roughly 10 months later, on November 4th, another chimpanzee named Enos took flight. Both primates were packed into capsules barely bigger than their Albert predecessors, but they returned safely to Earth. Their voyages soon paved the way for Mercury astronaut John Glenn to become the first American in orbit on February 20th, 1962. And lest you think sending non-humans into orbit was distinct to the space race era, think again. Even after the 1969 moon landing, a host of other so-called biological payloads, or living cargo, were launched into space carrying species such as rabbits, turtles, insects, fish, amoeba, and algae. From 1966 to 1996, Russia launched a series of 11 satellites as part of its Beyond mission in partnership with a host of other countries, including the United States. Each of these satellites carried a biological payload into space and back. The program, though, came to a rolling stop following the Beyond 11 voyage in 1996. Two monkeys named Lapik and Multik were included on the mission, and they safely returned to Earth. However, Multik passed away from an anesthesia-induced heart attack during routine medical tests. Multik's death caused a ripple of protests condemning the Beyond missions for their use of animal test subjects. In the ethical backlash, NASA dropped out of the upcoming Beyond 12 voyage, and Russia closed its program indefinitely. It did not resume until nearly 20 years later, in April 2013, when a Russian spacecraft sent a payload of 45 mice, 8 gerbils, and 15 newts into orbit. While the newts did fine, less than half of the mice and none of the gerbils survived. Their deaths were blamed on equipment failure and, quote, the stresses of space. Despite these troublesome facts, or rather because of them, an inconvenient truth remains. If not for animal astronauts, mankind would have never glimpsed the viability of life in space. And in the case of the space race, had these creatures not involuntarily been put into orbit, neither the U.S. nor Russia would have had the courage to send a manned spacecraft. Which presents the next problem with the space race. The idea of a manned voyage, and specifically those deemed man enough for such a journey. As for those considered worthy candidates, a very clear pattern emerged. Must-haves included a military background, being a man, and implicitly being white. An extremely narrow demographic. Coming up, NASA squashes a program that could have put a woman into space.
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. With the launch of Sputnik 1 on October 4th, 1957, the space race between the U.S. and Russia was officially afoot. And when Sputnik 2 launched a month later carrying Laika the dog, both sides eagerly imagined a time quite soon when humans could safely voyage into orbit. But Russia was already two steps ahead, and the U.S. felt the need to act decisively. In a high-stakes race, a coach often selects their most qualified runner. It doesn't matter where they come from or what they look like, simply that they're the best person for the job, right? Wrong. At least when it came to the space race. Look no further than a simple photo of the Mercury 7 crew to understand the most important criteria. Each was a Caucasian male. Not a coincidence. In 1959, with spaceflight looming on the horizon and no one with the astronaut experience to match, the two-year-old NASA agency turned to the U.S. military. They requested a list of active duty test pilots who met their specific qualifications. They had to be under 40 years old, less than 5 feet and 11 inches tall, and in excellent physical condition. The ideal candidate was also expected to possess a bachelor's degree or engineering training, have graduated test pilot school, qualified as a jet pilot, and logged at least 1,500 hours of flying time. And implicitly, they had to be male. The Air Force only hired men to begin with, but apparently it was a critical point to reiterate in doing so, NASA spurned a whole demographic that was eager to take to the skies. And they may have made even better astronauts than the Mercury 7. These were the female pilots of World War II. During the war, and in line with social norms of the time, the U.S. barred women from participating in combat. However, as World War II reached its third year in 1942, a severe shortage of Air Force pilots caused renowned female aviator Jackie Cochran to found the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASPs. The WASPs were sent to free up male Air Force pilots from non-combative tasks such as performing test flights and ferrying planes. It was a dangerous career, and of the 1,100 WASP members, 38 died in accidents, 11 during training, and 27 others were killed while flying active duty missions. Despite this, WASPs were not considered military members. Should anything happen to them in service, their families weren't even allowed to drape a flag over the coffin or hang a service flag in their window. Honors for only bona fide military personnel. Then, to further twist the knife, 
In June 1944, the House of Representatives narrowly vetoed a bill aimed at granting military status to WASPs. Subsequently, the House Committee on Civil Services hedged federal funding. In the fallout, the WASP program dissolved. Following the war, many of these women continued to fly. Jackie Cochran became the first woman to break the sound barrier on May 18, 1953. And as Project Mercury heated up soon after in 1959, it was only a matter of time before these women became a part of the space conversation. This was largely due to the efforts of a physician named Dr. William Randolph Lovelace. In 1959, Dr. Lovelace designed the physical aptitude tests for the Mercury 13 program, a series of medical and physiological tests designed to show how well a candidate could survive in space and their psychological response to its stressors. Following the selection of the Mercury 7 in 1959, testing continued for future astronaut candidates. Meanwhile, Dr. Lovelace began mulling over an idea. And he soon discovered that General Donald Flickinger of the U.S. Air Force shared the same thought. Why not try the tests on female pilots? The question was purely practical. Women were generally lighter and used up less food and oxygen than men, all advantages in space travel. And Lovelace had a hunch that the female disposition might be better suited to handling the stress and isolation inherent to spaceflight. By September of 1959, General Flickinger had taken the project under his wing, naming it Program WISE, or Women in Space Earliest. To add to the excitement, he and Dr. Lovelace had honed in on their perfect candidate, 28-year-old former WASP, Geraldine, or Jerry Cobb. As a 19-year-old WASP, Jerry Cobb had been tasked with teaching male pilots how to fly. And by age 21, she was delivering military fighter jets and huge four-engine bombers overseas. A dangerous voyage for anyone. By the time Flickinger and Lovelace approached her in 1959, Cobb was already an internationally decorated competitive flyer. She also had established her career as a pilot and manager at Aero Design and Engineering Company, an impressive title for a young woman in the late 50s. Cobb readily agreed to be the test subject for Program Wise. It was the culmination of everything she'd ever dreamed of and worked towards. To boot, Wise was a timely project considering that Moscow had just leaked plans to put their first woman in space. But before it could even begin, WISE was shut down. The Air Force had already performed a few of the Mercury tests on another female aviator. And in 1959, a magazine called Look had partnered with NASA to run adapted Mercury tests on yet another female pilot. This latter sample was purely a publicity stunt, and neither of the women had been conclusively tested. But this hardly mattered to the American public. Their ensuing fascination with female astronauts wasn't so much one of pride and excitement as it was amusement and skepticism, even mistrust. 
Could a woman really take on so much responsibility, given all that was at stake in the space race and the Cold War? And was that even their proper role? Better leave it to the men. This sexist sentiment was backed up by the popularity of the Mercury 7. America was infatuated with these middle America would-be heroes. Neither the Air Force nor NASA wanted to risk this infatuation by introducing female candidates, especially when they themselves didn't believe women would make the best astronauts to begin with. And so the Air Force swooped in to contain the narrative, which meant pulling the plug on program-wise. Flickinger himself bluntly summarized the situation in a letter to Jerry Cobb. He said, The consensus of opinion was that there was too little to learn of value to Air Force medical interests and too big a chance of adverse publicity to warrant continuation of the project. In essence, the Air Force and NASA were too afraid to nudge the status quo and too unwilling to learn the truth. Less than two months after it began, Program Wise was canceled. But Dr. Lovelace was determined to continue his research. In February 1960, he guided Cobb through the same physical tests as the Mercury 7 astronauts. She passed with flying colors. Both Cobb and Dr. Lovelace were elated. He was determined to solidify his research. Were females overall predisposed to do better in space, or was Jerry Cobb just a rare specimen? By early 1960, Dr. Lovelace and Cobb were scrutinizing a list of over 700 qualified female pilots, which they finally whittled down to 19. These included notable women, such as 37-year-old Jean Hickson, the second woman to break the sound barrier after Jackie Cochran, and 38-year-old Jane Hart, the wife of a Michigan senator and a mother of eight. Many of these women had worked as flight instructors, and on average, they possessed thousands more hours of experience than their Mercury 7 counterparts. Whereas astronaut John Glenn had racked up 5,100 hours of flying at the top of his group, Jerry Cobb had 10,000 hours. Unlike the Mercury 7 men, the women were not tested as a group, making their exams arguably even harder without moral support. Instead, they traveled individually to Lovelace's own clinic in New Mexico to undergo phase one of the Mercury tests a grueling physical exam. This included everything from a full gynecological exam to swallowing a rubber hose to bicycling in place for hours on end. The participants even had freezing water shot into their eardrums to induce vertigo, a particularly painful and nauseating experiment. But in the end, 13 of the 19 women passed. Clearly, biology was not holding them back, but the social norms of the 60s would. Following phase one, several of the women had to pause their tests in order to tend to their families and unsympathetic careers. Meanwhile, Jerry Cobb, 22-year-old Wally Funk, 
and 38-year-old Rhea Hurley traveled to Oklahoma City for phase two, which included psychological exams. They aced the phase two tests. Wally Funk even set a record for spending the longest amount of time in a sensory deprivation tank. Whereas the Mercury male pilots had only been able to stand a few hours, Funk had placidly endured 10. So far, the women were just as physically capable and even more psychologically capable than any of the men Dr. Lovelace had helped to test. In spite of the inherent sexism in the Air Force and NASA, Lovelace and Cobb were beginning to believe they had a fighting chance. The proof was in the pudding. Jerry Cobb was ready to seal her aptitude. She independently completed phase three testing, the flight portion. Her results officially ranked her in the top 2% of all men and women who had tested under Lovelace's program. Excited, 12 of the other women prepared to undergo phase three. Dr. Lovelace had used his connections to secure the use of the Naval School of Aviation Medicine in Pensacola, Florida. Cobb and the 12 other women prepared to attend, with one participant, 23-year-old Jan Nora Stumbaugh Jessen, even quitting her job. Alas, all these efforts were in vain. Word leaked to NASA, who swiftly denied any involvement in the program. On September 12, 1961, five days before the scheduled tests, NASA canceled the use of the naval grounds. The women were heartbroken and furious. Jerry Cobb, for one, had already proven that she was a highly qualified candidate for the Mercury program. She was not about to let her efforts come to nothing this easily. In February of 1962, John Glenn became the second man and the first American to orbit the moon. Meanwhile, Cobb and Jane Hart, another female participant, took their qualms to Washington, D.C. They protested on behalf of the Mercury 13, or what they called at the time the Flats, first lady astronaut trainees. But their case was ill-fated from the start. On March 15, 1962, they met with Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson, a space race proponent capable of pulling major strings with the Air Force and NASA. LBJ was sympathetic, but ultimately unhelpful. His real opinions emerged later in a typewritten letter from May 1962. In it, Johnson vaguely purported to be open to the idea of females in space. However, at the bottom, scrawled in pen, he wrote, Let's stop this now. By July 1962, Cobb and Hart had caused enough ruckus with NASA that their case was brought before a House subcommittee. There, they petitioned NASA to include females in their astronaut training program. To do so, NASA would be required to repeal their stipulation that all Project Mercury candidates have a military background, a catch-22 considering that women had been petitioning for military recognition ever since World War II. But NASA was prepared to rely on their stipulations as though they were unchangeable. 
In her opening statement, Hart stated, It's inconceivable to me that the world of outer space should be restricted to men only, like some sort of stag club. Unfortunately, those she was addressing, both the House and the press, were just that. Men of the media peppered Hart with questions about how she could maintain her family while also being an astronaut. In response to Cobb's opening statement about the participation of women in the making of history, Representative Victor Anfuso said, The whole purpose of space exploration is to someday colonize these other planets, and I don't see how we can do that without women. It was a sexist and dismissive joke, and the sentiment was echoed by America's greatest at the time space celebrity, John Glenn. On day two of the hearings, NASA brought in their big guns, John Glenn and Scott Carpenter, both Mercury 7 astronauts. In his testimony, Glenn said, The men go off and fight the wars and fly the airplanes and come back and help design and build and test them. The fact that women are not in this field is a fact of our social order. In so many words, he outlined the gender bias at the heart of NASA and the Air Force. And just like that, day three of the hearings was canceled. The case was thrown out. Up next, NASA sidelines a perfectly good candidate. Now, back to the story. In 1962, 31-year-old Jerry Cobbs stood before a House subcommittee requesting it overturn NASA's requirement that future astronauts be men, dictated by the agency's mandatory military status. Ultimately, the committee voted with NASA. It was not required to overturn its military qualifications. Thus, women remained barred from Project Mercury. One year later, on June 16, 1963, 26-year-old Soviet cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space. America had received warning that this would happen, and considering they had already sent astronaut John Glenn into space a year before, they would have been capable of pulling off this milestone themselves. But there was no sigh of regret from NASA. This had simply been a goal they were not interested in pursuing. The so-called civilian agency was a staunch boys' club, and they were determined to keep it that way. It wasn't a secret that some of the men hadn't tested into the Mercury 7 ranks on qualifications, but connections. John Glenn did not meet the Mercury requirement to have a college degree, yet he passed through the ranks of the program without one, becoming the first American in space. Meanwhile, a diverse range of candidates were sidelined in favor of the white Mercury 7 boys. This was largely due to a criteria from President Dwight D. Eisenhower that all Mercury candidates should possess a military test pilot background, an inherently sexist and racist benchmark considering that women and minorities had been barred from this military role up to this point. But the 1960s brought the winds of change. When JFK stepped into office in January of 1961, he was ready to make dramatic leaps in the Space Race Initiative and to champion the Concurrent Civil Rights Initiative. 
Let's not credit JFK with all the brilliant ideas, though. This one came from journalist Edward R. Murrow, who had witnessed firsthand the international popularity of Yuri Gagarin, the first man ever in space. Murrow floated that the U.S. should be the first to put a person of color into orbit. He reasoned it would send a message about America's superior democracy, despite the fact that much about America remained inherently racist. This was still the early 60s, and Jim Crow segregation laws were alive and well. In the summer of 1962, while Jerry Cobb was fighting for women in space, Murrow's idea was passed along to Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson. Johnson's aide, George Reedy, investigated the possibility, and he came back with a cringeworthy report. Reedy ultimately approved of the idea, but remarked that the administration should, quote, dispose of the concept that NASA can just reach out and grab a black man and make an astronaut candidate out of him. Nonetheless, the White House tentatively moved forward with putting the first black man in space as part of their cultural grandstanding. But their efforts were half-hearted from the start. To begin with, they didn't choose a handful of qualified candidates. Considering that the Mercury 7 men had been narrowed down from an initial pool of 503 candidates, it would have made sense for at least 100 worthy names to be submitted for the new initiative. Instead, just one man was selected, 29-year-old Ed Dwight. Dwight was elated. Flying had been his passion since he was a young boy, and to become an astronaut seemed like a fairy tale for a black man in the early 60s. Consequently, his appointment stirred intense media buzz and the excitement of America's black communities. Everyone could see that Dwight was nothing short of perfect, an Air Force serviceman with a cum laude degree in aeronautics and the performance ratings and flight times to boot. It was a hopeful initiative, but again had traces of impending doom. Dwight would later say, I knew there was going to be a racial component to that obstacle, but I didn't know it was going to be as sophisticated and as determined as it was. Dwight maintains that from day one, people in the program were looking to see him fail. Specifically, the Commandant of the Mercury Astronaut Training School, Air Force General Chuck Yeager. In Yeager's own 1985 memoir, he admitted to having little tolerance for White House interference in what was an Air Force initiative at that time. Still, Dwight passed phase one of Mercury testing with flying colors, but this was as far as he would get. He later recalled a classmate telling him about a secret meeting between Jaeger and the other instructors at the school. Supposedly, Jaeger said, we can get him out of here in six months. We can break him. Regardless of what specifically prompted him, Dwight did indeed drop out before he could complete the rest of his testing. Poignantly, neither the Air Force nor the White House made any efforts to replace him. In spite of this dubious tale, the space race didn't hesitate to rely on minorities in other ways, especially behind the scenes. Take the black female mathematicians who played a crucial role in the space race missions. 
Women like Katherine Johnson were pivotal to such advances as the first American man in space. John Glenn himself requested that Johnson double-check the calculations on his 1962 mission. Johnson's nimble computing would see a long career. Her math synced the Apollo 11 command module with the lunar lander in 1969. And in 1970, Johnson's backup procedures proved crucial to the return of the Apollo 13 mission after it malfunctioned. She was invaluable at NASA, and in being both a woman and a person of color, she was one of the few employees who managed to foil the institutional racism and sexism of the agency. But another woman would soon challenge this standard. In 1971, Many of NASA's operations were entrenched in the apartheid South. As such, its employment numbers reflected their failure to improve hiring practices along the steadily progressing civil rights era. With a mere 5.6% of minority employees and an 8% of female employees, NASA employed the least of both demographics out of any government agency at the time. But NASA was dragging its feet and the depth of this problem became clear in the fall of 1971. The agency had recently hired 59-year-old Ruth Bates Harris to fill a new role as Director of Equal Opportunity. But within a week of her appointment, she was demoted. The position was given to a man who became her boss, and her title was changed to Deputy Assistant Administrator. Still, Harris continued doggedly in her role. In the words of historian Kim McQuaid, NASA expected Harris to be a patient schoolteacher, not one to ruffle feathers. But Harris was on a mission for reform. For one, she paid a visit to the office of Werner von Braun, a former Nazi scientist who had become America's most beloved rocket builder. Harris demanded to know whether he had been involved in the use of slave labor to build German rockets. She would later say that the silence was deafening and awesome. This was just one anecdote in Harris's quest for justice, but she was met with frustration at every corner. Her superiors refused to pursue von Braun's past or any other civil malady infecting NASA. And so, in September of 1973, Harris and her colleagues compiled a 40-page report that explicitly said, NASA's Equal Opportunity Program is a near-total failure. A month later, she was fired. Her dismissal made national headlines. It riled both civil rights groups and members of Congress. By August 1974, NASA conceded to rehiring Harris sealing up the internal records on her case. But the damage was done. The battle had exhausted every ounce of Harris's professional and personal strength. In 1976, she suffered a divorce and a nervous breakdown, leading to her separation from NASA. Even after she returned to Washington in 1978, she had no interest in meddling with the agency. However, Harris had fought well on a worthy battlefield. In the same year that she returned to civil service, the agency graduated its first class of astronauts. This class of 1978, dubbed the 35 New Guys, included females, 
African Americans and Asian Americans. Among these were Guyon S. Bluford, the first African American in space, and Sally Ride, the first U.S. female in space. So finally, 15 years after the Soviets put a woman in space, America agreed to let a female have a fighting chance. And by the time Sally Ride took her first voyage on the Challenger, it had been 20 years. And while NASA had at last taken steps to lay aside sexism, the American public had not. Throughout her career at NASA, Ride faced ridiculous questions from the media. One reporter asked her whether or not she was going to cry if they hit a malfunction. And another asked, will the flight affect your reproductive organs? Despite these obstacles, women and other minority groups pushed aside the mindless public chatter and persevered to make their own mark on space. Yet in many ways, they remain hidden behind the looming shadow of the space race. Regardless of their willingness to participate, they were purposefully kept out of the narrative. And that will forever be a blot on America's history. The ethical standards behind the space race were nefarious, to say the least. Yet there are other very physical and mental dangers lurking in the shadows. Join us next week as we examine the health hazards for those who traveled into the galaxy. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Ali Wicker, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. 